At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Around my mom, all I hear is lies. I don't know what to believe in. Damn, if you want to believe in something, then believe in it. Just because something isn't true, that's no reason you can't believe in it. The long speech I give to young man sounds like you need to hear a piece of it. It's the peace. Sometimes, the things that may or may not be true are the things that a man needs to believe in the most. That people are basically good. That honor... Courage and virtue mean everything. That power and money, money and power mean nothing. That good always triumphs over evil. And I want you to remember this, that love, true love never dies. You remember that boy. You remember that. Doesn't matter if it's true or not, you see. Man should believe in those things because those are the things worth believing in. Got that? So true, Robert Duval in Secondhand Lions. As I've mentioned before, the human psyche is a mixture of the rational and the irrational. The Gnostic and Hermetic way is to accept, unite, and tap into both sides. We suspend the rational to enter the dream worlds of the unconscious for higher ideals and heroic stories, for poetry and the other storm gods of creativity, to believe in things that aren't true, to find ways that they may become. We do exactly what William Blake said. I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's. I will not reason and compare. My business is to create. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? On the other hand, we leverage our reason like a lightsaber to circumcise all the foreskins of the lies of the powers and principalities placed over our heads. As James Joyce said, History is a nightmare from which I am trying to awaken. I, like God, do not play with dice and do not believe in coincidence. So let's unite our psyches together for that awakening at Aeon Bytnostic Radio. 
in our first show of 2020. Welcome to the desert of the real and Mithra's abode. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it just is. It just is. Especially with integrated psyches, so that one more time we rage against heaven and storm the gates of hell for our misplaced childhoods and paradises lost. In the eternal epic of that epic war against Jehovah and his angelic mafia. You think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created here on earth? In this new year, I am still Miguel Connor, your pompadus of gnosis and madmen across the waters of creation. The artist formerly known as Abraxas. No longer broadcasting in the frigid dystopia of Chicago, but now in the Illinois countryside near a town called Wakanda. As always, I am with you to proffer Gnostic truths and host guests you won't find anywhere else on the internets or even in meat space. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We need this Gnosis more than ever, or we've always needed it when you think about it. I mean, if death and taxes are the only certainty in life, then you know the game is rigged. You know it. Most religions wonder how evil came into the world. In Gnosticism, we wonder how good came into the world. There's only one hell, princess. The one we live in now. Hell is empty, and all the devils are here. Good has arrived, but it's very hidden, as we'll find out on this episode. For this, we're joined by David Harrison to discuss many of his works, including Freemasonry and Fraternal Societies. As both a high-level Freemason and academic historian of Freemasonry, David doesn't pussyfoot around with the facts. He provides both a clear historical and anthropological account of secret societies and their positive impact on culture, including taking care of the poor and the dispossessed, the lonely and the sick, how there were key initiatory systems lacking today. In a time when the elite, through the government and corporations, have warped or polluted or removed health care, mental care, welfare, and community cohesiveness. The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices. David's work is a great reminder of what we can be as a people when our rational and irrational are balanced in our psyches. I mean, secret societies are the perfect blend of fictional sensationalism and rational networking, aren't they? They are myth and they are mundane. 
I'd give anything to get into the stone cutters. What do they do there, Dad? What don't they do? <laughs> oh, they do so many things, they never stop. Oh, the things they do there. My stars. You don't know what they do there, do you? Not as such, no. Great interview. And highly recommend you look at David's work for sober history. Let's see the good and allow more good to come into the world. Let's also allow more Sophia to come for her rescue operation. I don't want to interrupt. I'll just get started on the apocalypse. But what is wisdom? Many have asked me. I will have some shows on Sophia in her theological and mythological lessons this year. But what exactly does it mean to be wise in the classical sense? As University of Toronto scholar John Verveek has said, there is descriptive knowing and interpretive knowing. Wisdom is the latter. Wisdom is holistically accessing all the faculties of the mind like experience, intuition, instincts, and logic dynamically tying them together. And for what? Well, a person who knows things interpretively becomes good because a wise person can be reflective. He or she can have self-examination, self-insight, move out of egocentrism and into agaping compassion because consciousness makes us useful to both the lower and higher worlds, to society and to the least of our brothers. Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. There is no spoon? Then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends, it is only yourself. Wisdom is becoming conscious of our darkness and light, as a repentant Sophia became in the Gnostic text. Wisdom is transformative. In short, wisdom is uniting the two sides of our psyche the rational and the rational, and becoming pretty much individuated. And wisdom is in short order today, I'm sure you agree. Like the book of Enoch says, Wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men, and found no dwelling place. Wisdom returned to her place, and took her seat among the angels. We're all the devil's children. We find what powers the sun and we make bombs of it. We achieve power and we go mad. We always destroy. When Sophia is with us and within us, we humans are truly that breathtaking place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. That Adam Cadmon. As Sophia tells her son, and the ultimate symbol of a disconnected ego, the Demiurge, in the secret book of Juan, an immortal man has existed before you and will appear among your model forms. He will trample you to scorn as a potter's clay is pounded. At the consumption of your works, all the effects that truth has made visible will be abolished as though they have never been. 
When the Matrix was first built, there was a man born inside who had the ability to change whatever he wanted, to remake the Matrix as he saw fit. It was he who freed the first of us. And as the Nag Hammadi Libraries, the Sophia of Jesus Christ says, All who come into the world like a drop from the light are sent to the world of the Demiurge. And the bond of his forgetfulness bound him by the will of Sophia, that he might be revealed the world is in poverty concerning the Demiurge's arrogance and blindness and the ignorance. I, the Logos, have cut off the work of the robbers. I have awakened that drop that was sent from Sophia, that it might bear much fruit through me and be perfected and not again be defective, so that Sophia might also be justified in regard to that defect that her sons might not again become defective, but might attain honor and glory and go up to their unknown father and know the words of the light. Don't give yourselves to brutes, men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. In essence, we are all drops of the pleuromic light. The tears of Pistisophia. Come to crack the universe and let the good in. So let's find wisdom and let's unite our psyches in 2020 and for all eternity. And our interview with David Harrison is a great start. Enough of my drivel, birdie num num and nipples for men. You're saying that humans need fantasies to make life bearable? No. Humans need fantasy to be human to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape with tooth fairies hogfathers yes as practice you have to start out learning to believe the little lies so we can believe the big ones yes justice mercy duty that sort of thing they're not the same at all you think so then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, you try to act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some, some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. But people have got to believe that. What's the point? You need to believe in things that aren't true. How else can they become? This is the AM Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined 
by David Harrison to discuss uh, a wonderful topic of secret societies, Freemason, and so forth, based on his book, The Genesis of Freemasonry, as well as Freemasonry and Fraternal Societies, which he co-wrote with Fred Lomax. How are you doing, David, and welcome to the show. Very well, thank you, Miguel. Yeah, yes, great to be here. Glad to have you on. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog, Van Saatchi. How's it going, Vance? I'm doing fine this wonderful California morning. Good deal. All right. Well, David, let's start with you. Uh, tell us how you became interested in uh, Freemasonry. Um, well, it was all an accident, really. Um, I've, I've told this story many times before, but... Uh, um, it was, uh, I became a Freemason about 21 years ago now, um, 1998. So, um, quite, quite a long time really. Um, but completely by accident, um, at the time, um, I just finished university and, um, I did a history degree and, um, I was with uh, a girl, I've seen a girl at the time and her father was a Freemason and he basically uh, said, do you want to come along? Do you want to, you know, check out some of the social events that we've got? And I went along. Um, because my degree was history, um, one of the first things that I picked up on was the uh, the historical aspects of Freemasonry. And um, so he he basically got me in the lodge, which, which were this, was this really nice little quaint lodge that met in a uh, Cheshire village in England, north of England, the northwest of England. And it was great. And um, I uh, kind of took to it, you know, in a, in a, in a big way, really, which um, um, I, I thought that I would I would never fit in a place like that, really. Um, coming from a more working class background, you know. And um, at the same time, I was doing an MA in history and uh, the tutor suggested you want to do a PhD. You know, if you can come up with a, a good idea for a PhD. And um, I said, well, what about the history of Freemasonry? At the same time, I'd, I'd just joined this lodge. Um, and most lodges, I think most lodges around the world, you know, wherever you go, uh, they meet in Masonic halls or, you know, in, in um, little places or wherever, um, little Masonic places, they, 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 they all have a, a library. So I had access to a lot of books. And um, I said, well, let's do it on the history of Freemasonry. And um, uh, they, they, went for it and I started this PhD in the year 2000 um, and that was part-time I was I was teaching at the same time lecturing at the same time and I finished that in 2007 completed the thesis uh, successfully defended it in 2008 early 2008 and that became my first book which was called the Genesis of Freemasonry which you mentioned um, in the introduction and that sold really well. Um, I had enough material for a second book, uh, which I which I entitled "The Transformation of Freemason," uh, which was like a follow-on from uh, the first book. And this was made up of um, other bits of the PhD that was basically chopped off um, because my research was was taking me all different directions, and and I had to cut it back and get focused. And um, so that became a second book. And then it just carried on from there. So more or less every year, I've I've, I've been able to produce a book um, on on the history of uh, Freemasonry, English Freemasonry mainly, 
And um, 10 years later, I'm still doing it. Uh, I'm on my 10th book, which is out in a couple of weeks, which is called um, uh, A Journey Through Freemasonry. And that's that's a compilation of, of all my articles that I've done over the past 20 years. So, um, yeah, it's been quite a good career, really, as well, you know. Um, and it's lasted quite a while, which is good. So. Wonderful. Yeah, it's great to do something we really have passion for and to get your doctorate and all that. Uh, that's a, it's a great journey. So, but the questions would be, David, um, outside of wanting to rule the world as every Freemason is supposed to do, what has mm. Freemasonry done for you? How has it enriched your life or your consciousness? Well, um, it's, um, that's, that's one of the things that, that you always get, you know. Uh, people say, oh, you know, Freemasons, they, they all want to, they're all in it together. They're all <laughs> trying to rule the world. Um, but that, that's so far from, from, from the truth. I mean, I mean, free, Freemasonry's got a lot of rivalry in it as well. Um, and, um, with, with some of the historical research that I've done, most of my books, I've got to say, are about Freemasons falling out. Um, Freemasons, uh, not getting along. Um, the, uh, the first book, um, Genesis of Freemasonry, going back to that, I mean, that, that was all about the splits in Freemasonry, in English Freemasonry, um, because there was an original Grand Lodge, uh, founded in 1717, and, um, this, uh, continued for a while throughout the 18th century. By the time we get to 1751, there's another Grand Lodge pops up, um, called the Ancients. And, uh, this, this carries on for a while. And then there's another Grand Lodge, uh, the York Grand Lodge, um, the Grand Lodge of all England held at York, which was a more localized Grand Lodge. And, and none of them really got on, you know, um, at, at certain points in their career, there was, there was all kinds of, um, you know, uh, slanging matches and things like this going on. And, um, uh, but that's not to say at local level, Freemasons could pop in and, you know, check out an ancient lodge or a modern lodge, as the original Grand Lodge became called. Um, or even the York Grand Lodge. Masons from the York Grand Lodge could pop over and, and uh, you know, um, visit other lodges. Um, that's what was going on at local level. Um, but at Grand Lodge level, there was, you know, a bit of antagonism. Um, so so really, there's there's a history of Freemasons falling out. You know, they're, they're certainly not in it altogether. You know, it's... It's um, <clears throat> a very uh, rich society, um, and there's different aspects of Freemasonry as well. I mean, there's 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 what they call regular Freemasonry, which is um, you know that uni- uni- uh, United Grand Lodge of England and and um, the the Grand Lodges in um, America and various other Grand Lodges around the world that share this 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 regular uh, regularity. Uh, but then you get other Grand Lodges that, that aren't regular. Um, you get your Memphis Misraim, um, lodges. Um, you get your, um, uh, mixed, uh, lodges where they have both male and female. You get female only lodges, you know. So it's, um, it, it's not a big unified, um, umbrella, shall we say. You know, it's very diverse. If, if you look at, the whole of Freemasonry, it's, it is very rich and diverse. That makes sense because 
And this show, we have had many guests, and it's so fascinating, the the different points of view, how they come at it. There's some guests, and they do their research, are convinced that high-level Freemasons are pulling the strings on geopolitics. Other Freemasons are like, no, this is an experience, and it enriched my life, and I just see you know fellow blokes doing the best they can in networking. But at the end of the day, I think you answered the question, David, is Freemasonry is decentralized and it's a fluid network. So you're going to get a mixed bag of all parts of society and history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, throughout throughout its history, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's been full of these rich characters, you know, um, Edward Jenner, for example, Um who um, came up with the uh, the smallpox uh, vaccine? Um, he was a Freemason, um, and, and of course you've got um, you know Ben Franklin, George Washington, James Monroe, um, uh, Stanford Raffles. You know you've got all these um, historical figures. You know that that, that were um, Freemasons in the past, um, and then you've got some some lesser known ones as well. That you know more more localized ones that that, that are philanthropists. Um, creating schools and libraries and, and, and things like this at local level. Um, but, but there's always been that aspect to it where there's been rebellions and fought, uh, falling outs, you know, in, in Freemasonry. Uh, one, one of my books was the Liverpool Masonic Rebellion, um, which is the, t- uh, the title suggests, uh, was about a Masonic rebellion in Liverpool in, in the early 19th century. And, um, they, they fell out with, with, um, regular Freemasonry and, and, uh, started their own Grand Lodge, you know? Um, so, so there's been a lot of fallouts and things like that, but at the same time, you know, it, it reflects society. You know, if, if, if you put a bunch of men in a room, some of them are going to fall out, you know, some are going to fall out with each other. Right. They're not going to get along with each other, you know? Um, so that's, that, that, that's my big defense for that question, really, you know, like, oh yeah, they're all in it together. They're all going to take it. <laughs> well, you know? Um, it's um it's it's something that's uh quite quite interesting in itself really you know that that kind of aspect because obviously people look at secret societies and and um they they don't know what's going on behind closed doors so um that's the uh the way the way people think it's, it's probably the way the way that i think if i if i wasn't a freemason you know i i, I can remember before I became a Freemason and, um, you know, in the, uh, growing up in the eighties, early nineties and, um, you know, uh, Freemasonry was, was, um, a middle-class domain, you know, um, many, many guys that were in Freemasons that, that we knew of, um, had, had, you know, top, top of the range jobs in business or, um, local politics or, some, or something like that, you know. So, so, so you're bound to get that that impression, you know, if you don't fully know what it's all about. Yes, I think you hit it on the head. Human beings are human beings, uh, regardless. And sometimes I, I like to wait till the end of the interview for this more light question. But I thought we'd start with this uh, just for something different. What would you say, David? Are any movies? that you feel really represent or amuse you or maybe secretly reveal Freemasonry. For example, some friends who are Freemasons have told me that uh, The Ninth Gate by Roman Polanski and Johnny Depp are 
It's a Freemason ritual. Of course, others have told me that Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut reveals Freemasonry uh, rituals. And, of course, we got to mention the obligatory Simpsons Stonecutters episode that uh, many have known. But what movies, uh, and, of, and my point of view, of course, I like Alan Moore's uh, From Hell, which uh, mm. was made into the movie and, of course, shows the Freemasonry sort of behind the whole Jack the Ripper uh, shenanigans, but what uh, Freemason movies do you recommend or do you like personally? Um, well, that's, that's a good question. Um, uh, I suppose the um, going going back to um, uh, Stanley Kubik's um, eyes eyes wide shut. Um, for me, that one. Um, isn't about Freemasonry at all. It's 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 more about the um, secret kind of um, I don't know how to put this. Um, is it is it a family show? This or is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, don't worry. I put a warning after every show only for adults. Oh, or <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It, to to me that 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 film's more about the um, you know the deep state, as it were. You know the 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 um, the darker elements of powerful people, um, the deeper and darker parts of uh, what goes on in in a powerful society, uh, the elite, um, you know, those kind of parties that go on in in right. manor houses, things like that, you know, um, and obviously recent events in the news um, with the uh, you know the um, the Epstein case and, and all of this, you know, um, that fits more into that category, really. Um, the elite secret gatherings, nothing to do with Freemasonry at all. Um, and obviously there's more of a sexual element going on with, uh, with eyes wide shut. Um, it's, um, uh, very kind of ritualistic. Yeah. But, but you, you've got to remember that, um, all, all ritualistic stuff isn't Masonic, you know, isn't just Masonic. It's, you know, you have um, rituals in orders like the OTO or um, the Golden Dawn and, and things like that, which which um, may have started out with, with people that were also Freemasons or dabbled in some kind of Freemasonry, um, but they've obviously shot off in a different direction. Um, so um yeah you know uh, that's uh, an interesting film um not not about freemasonry per se but you know still got that ritual element and um that kind of deep darker uh, side of the um the powerful elite um but uh, yeah the other film you mentioned was good as well and um, that's that's one of my favorite films uh, the uh, the ninth gate um now that's that's more about um the occult obviously um not not so much secret societies i mean there's 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 one that's that's mentioned in in the film where uh, they all gather again in a in a mansion at the end i think isn't it uh, to, towards the end they all, right. they all gather in a in a manor house in france somewhere and um saint martin in in france isn't it and uh, so there's a hint there. San, San Martin was a Freemason. Obviously, he, he was involved in um, the Eloquois of the 18th century, and um, Martinism obviously uh, was 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 founded in his in his name. But um, that was again very similar to uh, uh, to Eyes Wide Shut. 
you know, these, these rich guys going off to a mansion, doing all kinds of orgies and things and, and parties and things like that. And, but that, that had a bit of Satanism involved there, didn't it? You know, it was all about putting Indeed, that, yeah. put, putting the puzzles of that book together and, and, uh, finding the, uh, the ninth gate. So, um, yeah, interesting stuff, you know. Um, well, I can't, I can't really remember anything about Freemasonry in a film that's, uh, you know, you know, that's been, been, been good or been, been, been nearer to the point. <laughs> Close to accurate. <laughs> the, yeah. Beyond the usual sensationalism. Well, well, you might, you might know, know this film. I've, I've, I've forgotten its name now, but, um, it's, it's from the 1960s and it's an American film. And, um, I can remember watching it as, as a kid and it, and it had a, had a big impression on me. So I must have seen it in the 70s. And I, th- I think I've seen a repeat of it in the 80s. But it's set in the 60s. Um, it's basically about this guy, um, that's got it all. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of, um, um, you know, got, got a great job, great car, living in, in a, in a nice part of town. He's married. And, um, he, um, he disagrees with something, uh, in, in the office or something like that. And, uh, he, um, starts, starts falling out with his wife. And it, it kind of turns out that he's got all these things because his, his father-in-law, um, got him, got him into this society and he, and he didn't even know he was a member of the society. Um, and because he starts kind of questioning things, um, he, he, he basically loses his wife and he, and he loses his job and he, and he, and he loses everything, you know, um, do you, do, do you recall that film at all? No, it's not ringing a bell. Uh, do you remember the oh. actors or Vance? Does that ring a bell with you? Oh, nope, no, I haven't seen it. No, it's a sixties film. Um, and, um, I can remember seeing it in the seventies, you know, as a kid. And it, it was basically, um, uh, it, it got sucked into this, this secret society, but he didn't really know it, it, it was a secret society. You know, he was, uh, and it, and he got on all these things, you know, like the wife and the, and the, and the house and the job and the car because he was a, a member of this, you know, uh, but he didn't even know he was a member. And, uh, th- things started going, going downhill for him when he started questioning things. And, and so it was a good film and I've, I've, I've been trying to find it again, but never, never been able to find it again. Mm. Yeah, Searching. it sounds one of those '60s existentialist films, like the yeah. the prisoner yeah. or something, where you you realize your whole life is sort of a lie. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been trying to search YouTube for it for years. <laughs> so, so, so maybe one of your uh, um, your listeners might 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 know about that one. Yes, um, if anybody hears, please let us know. Or unless, of course, the the Freemasons wiped it off the face of the earth just to make sure we're not onto them. <laughs> Deleted it. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, wonderful. Well, uh, for the audience. So again, we have, uh, we've had a lot of guests these last 12 years and some theories are way out there from aliens to Atlantis to all. Some are more sober, but in your view, David, as you are both an adherent and a scholar, when did Freemasonry start? Um, well, this is a, it's going to be a long, a long answer, this one. Um, no, please go ahead. Well, uh, this, this was all what my thesis was about. And, you know, my first book, the Genesis of Freemasonry. And, um, my, my theory was, was that, um, Freemasonry 
basically developed from the um, stonemasons guilds. Um, it's um, changed and adapted o- over time. Um, in England, where when you get the uh, the Reformation, um, Henry Henry VIII, you know, um, dissolving the the monasteries and, and doing all that business, um, the uh, uh, the stonemasons guild seems to have gone downhill for a bit, um, and uh, it, it's it survived. You know, there's there's a lot of records of masons um, still still doing work, stonemasons um, who were called Freemasons at, at that particular time. And um, they, they were operative as, as opposed to speculative. Um, the operative Freemasons are the Masons that, that build the cathedrals and, and the churches. Um, and the speculative ones were the, the Masons that um, basically just kind of used the, the ethos and um, the beliefs of the uh, the operative stonemasons, if you like, and round about the um, uh, the end of the sixteenth uh, century, uh, beginning of the uh, the seventeenth century, you you start getting this 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 change where some of these operative lodges start to um, bring in speculative members. In, in, the, in their lodges and the lodges were, were basically the, their little areas of management shall we say um, for the, uh, the stonemasons and they were bringing in these speculative freemasons uh, that weren't operative that, that, that couldn't you know kind of um, get stone out of the quarry or, or uh, finish it off or anything like that but they, they were um, using the philosophical ideas of these stonemasons and um, using them for moral purposes, you know. So um, they they weren't trained to actually um, finish off a stone, if you like, and dress a stone. But the the whole idea that um, their life was a journey, and they started off rough around the edges, if you like, and through the teachings of, of Freemasonry, um, they could be a more polished and finished person at the end of it, a more moralistic person at the end of it. Um, so by the time we get to the 17th century, the mid 17th century, just after the, say just after the Civil War in England, uh, the 1640s, um, you get the uh, the first recorded English Freemason, uh, speculative Freemason, Elias Ashmole. And uh, that was 1646, um, just after the, the end of the um, the first stage of the Civil War, if you like, and he becomes a uh, Freemason in Warrington, which is where I'm from. And uh, so that that's another little interesting connection that that drove me into um, research, if you like. And um, he joined Freemasonry at the same time as um, another guy called Henry Henry Manoring. And uh, Elijah Ashmole was a royalist in the Civil War. Henry Mannering was a, uh, a parliamentarian. So you get a good example here of, um, in Freemasonry, um, you're not allowed to talk about politics or religion. So um, these two guys obviously were on the opposite sides of a real bloody civil war um, in England. And um, 
they could go into the same room together and, and be brothers. And in a place, in a sacred space, if you like, where you're not allowed to talk about religion or politics, they, they could be brothers for that one moment. And um, that's, that's one of the things about Freemasonry that's, that, that still exists today. You're not allowed to talk about religion or politics. Um, so um, within the lodge room, you know, so. Um, so as the 17th century progresses, um, you get more speculative Freemasons. Um, and eventually by 1717, um, you get the first Grand Lodge that's assembled. And uh, if, if you look at the lists, the membership list of, of that early Grand Lodge, um, you still see that there's some operative Freemasons in there, you know. Um, so there's still a light mix going on. Um, but throughout the 18th century, it becomes firmly, um, you know, a speculative club, if you like. So, um, so that's, that's my theory anyway. I think that's a very good theory. And don't you write too that of all people, Isaac Newton was very influential in Freemasonry overall, but he wasn't a Freemason. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was never a Freemason, but, um, he, um, he inspired, um, a guy called, uh, Jean Theophilus Desigoulier, who was, um, an early Freemason and, uh, an early Grand Master of the, uh, the English Grand Lodge. And, um, Jean Theophilus Desigoulier was, um, uh, a scientist, a uh, natural philosopher, if you like. Um, he, he was also a minister. So, so he had the, you know, the religious, themes as well and also the um the more scientific ones you know and they and they seem to meet with jean theophilus desigoulier um again freemasonry is about that balance you know the spiritual and the um the scientific if you like uh and you do get a lot of that in freemasonry throughout the um you know the the past three, 300 years or so you know um there's there's many Freemasons that that have that balance, like we mentioned um, Edward Jenner before. Um, he he had a similar balance, you know. Um, so um, yeah, um, so going back to the question, Sir Isaac Newton, yeah, he he was um, uh, he he inspired um, Jean, Jean Theophilus Desigoulier. Also, as well, you know, you get the um, Royal Society, um, which springs up around about 1660. 1661, and um, um, one one thing about Newton as well was that he was dabbling in alchemy, um, which is uh, quite well known, and he was also very much obsessed with the um, the dimensions of uh, Solomon's Temple, and as you're probably aware of, Solomon's Temple is uh, a main feature um, in Freemasonry. In fact, a Masonic Lodge is a representation of, of Solomon's Temple. So, um, um, so you've got, you know, a, a nice little connection there, really, you know, with Jean Theophilus Desigoulier, who becomes one of the early Grand Masters. Um, and I also put forward in, in my thesis in the book that, um, Jean Theophilus Desigoulier, uh, was influential in, uh, creating the, um, the modern three-degree ritual um, that, that we have still have today. 
in uh, Freemason. Um, before 17, 1726 or thereabouts, um, you, you only have like two degrees, which was, uh, you know, the entered apprentice and the, uh, the fellow craft. Um, and then suddenly you get this mention of a third degree, you know, in the, uh, 1720s. Um, so at the same time, Jean Theophilus Desagulier was, was one of the movers and shakers, you know, in the, the English Grand Lodge. Um, along with a few others, you know, uh, James Anderson was, was another one. Um, and, um, so I, so I put forward that he was, he was influential and I look at some of his work, um, in the Royal Society and, uh, some of his poetry as well, you know, which, um, is, uh, peppered with these Masonic, um, beliefs, if you like, you know, so, uh, uh Newtonian natural philosophy, and, um, certain aspects like that. So it's, it's all, it's all very interesting stuff, you know. It's like Freemason, uh, free, free, Freemasonry's forging itself <laughs> at that particular time. Yeah, very cool. And Vance, do you have a question for David? Yeah. It's interesting, given the fact that uh, Masons uh, can't discuss religion in, in the Lodge, that at least the early Masons had enmity with the Roman Catholic Church. And so, <clears throat> since I know you know a lot about the history of the Masons, could you tell us you know, how that happened and, you know, what the story with that is? Um, what do you mean when the, um, the Roman Catholic Church, um, basically fell out with, with, uh, they, they issued a, uh, a bull, didn't they? And, and, um, right. Yeah. Said, um, yeah, uh, no, no Catholics are allowed in, in, in this society. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that, that, that was more the Catholic Church, really. Um, and, uh, that, that led to, um, a, a lot of free, well, not a lot of Freemasons, but, but some, some famous Freemasons from, from the 18th century, you know, being, being punished, um, by, uh, the, the church or, uh, the Inquisition. Um, one, one of the famous ones was, uh, um, Count Alessandro Cagliostro, um, who, created his own rite. Um, it was an Egyptian rite, an, an, an Egyptian Masonic rite. And I mentioned about this in, in my, my last book, uh, The Lost Rites and Rituals of Freemasonry. And he basically uh, found himself in, in Rome and, and was arrested for being a Freemason. Um, and um, he died while, while being imprisoned. So, uh, um, you know, he, he came to a bit of a, um, bad end due, due to that really. Um, but there's, there's, there's been a few others as well, you know, that, um, um, that, that were punished and, and, um, found, found themselves, you know, being at the, uh, sticky end of, uh, the Inquisition, being tortured and things like that. I wonder why. Was it they were considered, uh, heretics because they talked about ancient paganism? There is a there is a legend that some pope wanted to be a Freemason and he was rejected, so he got resentful and banned the Masons. But David, I'm sure that's more legendary than anything. Yeah, um, I've I've heard that once once or twice. Yeah, I've, uh, yeah, never never really delved get delved into that. But um, 
yeah, there was there was a few people, you know, that that, that ended up um, being tortured and uh, imprisoned and things like that. You know, a few a few Freemasons, um, and um, there was um, a guy called um, I've got to get his name right now, um, John John Cousteau. Um, I'm sure I'm sure I've mis mis mispronounced that, but he he was another one. Uh, he was he was Portuguese. And he was a member of a lodge in London, and he ended up going back to, um, um, I think it was Spain or Portugal again, um, and um, he he ended up, uh, you know, being being tortured by uh, the Inquisition, um, and his yeah his main crime to them was was basically being you know um, a heretic in a way you know it was uh, being a member of this society that was forbidden and um he um managed to um um get free somehow and um when he got back to london he he wrote his memoirs and uh uh it was all about his torture and the book is full of these images of of, of you know john john Cousteau being being tortured you know stretched on a on a big stretcher and, uh-huh. and things and uh yeah, so um, it's an amazing book, you know. Um, you know, get into that kind of thing. But, uh, well, yeah, you know, he was he, he was one that was famously tortured. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it it wasn't easy if you if you kind of you know drifted onto the wrong the wrong side of things, really. Um, but that that was mainly in the 18th century, you know. Um, it was uh, a bit. A bit, a bit dodgy, shall we say? You know, in in certain Catholic countries, you know, that uh, um, if you were a Freemason, <laughs> yeah. At the same time, David, uh, it seems as you write that the the British government was pretty open to Freemasonry, but didn't they uh, at times clamp down on them? I think in your book, Freemasonry and Fraternal Societies, you write about the Secret Society Act of seventeen ninety nine and some other uh legislation that came in the 19th century what was going on then um <coughs> excuse me yeah well there was um there was a number of things happening then um with with the enlightenment you know the 18th century um you were uh, you start getting a few um revolutions going on you know and the big one was um the french revolution which um, had a, had a number of Freemasons involved, um, and and this this had an impact on um, English society, British society. There was uh, a bit of radicalism going on. Um, there was there was a few um, riots and things like that happening, uh, gatherings, um, and the whole radical scene was 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 growing. So, um, it was, um, very kind of, um, you know, um, uh, at the time that the politicians, the British politicians, uh, William Pitt, the younger, uh, brought, brought it in, um, the secret societies out. And it was basically to clamp down on, um, these societies that were, um, friendly societies or, um, uh, uh, the trade unions as well, because the, what, what was happening was the, 
you know, the um, the friendly societies were taking the the guise of, um, oh well, I, sh- I should say the the unions were taking the guise of friendly societies, um, and um, these these groups were seen as taking oaths, which which was important at the time. You know, you know, to take an oath on a Bible um, was seen as something that was um, against the uh, the crown um, treasonous in a way because you you know you were you were taking an oath that was um, in a in a hidden room you know in a back room somewhere um, that was against the um, the queen and country really you know um, so an example of this is um, the oh, I can't remember the name now um, there was um, are you talking about the old mechanic ceremony, which I can't get out of my head? Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can was discuss that it. That one, I was laughing for a while. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, there was that one where they where they've got the skull <laughs> and the and and they're taking the oath. Yeah, and the gun. Yeah, and they point a gun yeah. at your head while you swear an oath on the Bible. I was like, whoa. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The toll puddle martyrs. That's it. I I I just remembered it. All right. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the top of the martyrs were were similar because they they took an oath, um, and in the guise of a of a friendly society as well, um, they they were seen as this kind of radical group of people that were, you know, going to um, go on strike, you know, and 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 not do work anymore, you know, they, you know this kind of thing, and and they were found guilty of, um, um, you know, taking the oath and and. Uh, Sent off to Australia, you know. Um, but yeah, you, you have the um, mechanics as well that, that that sprang up at the same time. Um, early trade unions, really, that that were um, taking the guise of friendly societies and being kind of semi semi uh, ritualistic in a way, um, and adopting certain things from from Freemasonry and. In one of my books, I mentioned that at this particular time, Freemasonry was in England was was going through a bit of a transition because um, with with the Secret Societies Act in 1799, and of course you get the Combination Acts as well, um, especially in industrial areas where where, where lodges are meeting, um, the the gentlemen of of those areas seem to leave Freemasonry and. In, in these industrial areas, it seems to be more of a uh, working class makeup. And um, so you get this kind of cross between um, working class Freemasonry um, and um, the start of these um, friendly societies, you know, that, um, that aim to collect men together, working men together and, and to um, oppose you know, dangerous working conditions and things like this and, and uh, better pay and, and uh, you know. And um, I think a lot a lot of the working class Freemasons as well, at, at the time, you know, you go through the membership lists and, and you can see that, that there's, um, you know, there's there's um, factory workers in there. There's, there's more claims for uh, relief, for example. Um, there's quite a few claims for relief going on in these lodges at the time. Um in Manchester uh, and in places like Rochdale and Oldham, you get a lot of um, cotton spinners 
um, factory workers, you know, that, that are in lodges. Um, so, so the very working class, you know, in, in the early 19th century. And, and it, and it's only in the mid 19th century that the, uh, the middle classes start to come back in, you know, and, and you get these charismatic figures coming in, you know, and, and, um, then it starts to change again into a more middle class society. Um, but, uh, but yeah, at, at the same time, you get a lot of, um, groups, um, creating, um, things like the Odd Fellows and the Buffaloes, uh, which, which would be in that book that you read. Um, and these, these are more working class, um, societies. Uh, they have a ritual. They have the same symbols as Freemasonry. Um, and they become very, very popular, you know, and they're, they also provide, um, you know, sickness benefit and things like this. And, um, um, if, uh, one of the workers gets ill or something like that, you know, then, then, then they supply some funds for that and medical, um, funds and, uh, um, so they, they become these kind of fraternal societies, but also, um, benefit societies as well, you know, um, and they, and they continue up until, um, well, the present day, really, uh, the odd fellows are still going, the buffaloes are still going, um, you know, so it's an interesting, uh, period, you know, the early 19th century, the Freemasonry. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, I think it's an interesting point you bring up, David. First, for the audience, uh, his book, Freemasonry and Fraternal Societies, it's a great read. And David offers a lot of photographs, pictures of their posters, their symbolism, the actual, uh, pictures of them in the 19th century marching. So sometimes I was almost transported back to the 19th century and I felt like I could be in a beer house or a coffee club, smoking pipe and drinking and talking about society and all that. So it was a, a good job taking the reader through what was going on. But my point is that these organizations, like uh, you write about the Lodge of Light, they really help the poor. And even even here in the United States, people always go, well, we need the government for health care. But in the 19th century, it was the Shriners who were building hospitals and they were creating these collectives where everybody would chip in and everybody would get their own health care depending on the community. Even That's in right. Muslim countries, you've got the the secret society of these Malis. You've got the Aga Khan who's building hospitals in Africa and other places. So these secret societies were very help. They were sort of the healthcare system of the time. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. And and you can you can see that in uh, Britain as well in the UK when 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 they brought they brought out the NHS and uh, the welfare state um, after the Second World War. Um, when, when, when the Labour, Labour government, the Attlee government, uh, won, won, won the election. Um, and in the late forties, you know, you, you get the introduction of the welfare state. Um, these, these societies like the Oddfellows, the Buffaloes, the Ancient Shepherds, uh, the Rakabites, um, there's, there's many, the, uh, the Foresters is another one. They then go, go downhill. You know, uh, the membership starts to decline and, and in the book we present this argument and we present the, the figures as well that, that we've got from the, from these societies. And, um, today, 
Um, the Odd Fellows is 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 still going, but it's um, um, I think the number now is around about twenty thousand. I could be wrong on that, you know, because I wrote I wrote that book a few years ago with Fred. Um, but um, yeah, the, the 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 numbers from compared to what they were, you know, pre Second World War to now have certainly gone down. Um, where where Freemasonry actually went up after after the war, and um, that that hit hit a peak, and then that start, started to fall as well, you know. So um, I think at the moment, and again, it could be quite quite off with these figures, but um, I was reading the website the other week, and I'm, uh, the United Grand Lodge of England website, and I'm sure it said there's about uh, two hundred thousand Freemasons in the UK or worldwide. That's in the United Grand Lodge of England. So, um, so that's um, England, Wales, and probably a few other places that that they have jurisdictions um, over. But uh, um, I'm not sure about the worldwide figure at the moment. Um, these 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 figures change, you know. So, but um, yeah, there's 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 been a general decline, um, you know, in in the figures of Freemasonry in the uh, um, the membership figures. But uh, but yeah, the going going back to those other societies, yeah, they 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 were the um, um, you know the the way that people could ensure that, that, that they were covered for sickness benefit, um, for burial. Um, if, if they needed to go into a hospital or they needed medical care, that, that, that would be covered as well. Um, so they have this, this benefit side to the societies, but also this, this ritualistic side, um, this fraternal side, if you like, where they, they could actually go to a lodge meeting. Um, and I think in, in that book, we do, um, mention about this, this pub, this, this public house in a, in a place called St. Helens, which is, um, a northern industrial town, um, called, uh, the Swan. I think it's called the Swan. And they had the, uh, the Odd Fellows Lodge above the pub. And they met there for a number of years in the, uh, the later 19th century. Um, and they had, uh, ritual. They, they were, um, you know, had a, had a meal. You know, it was all, very fraternal, um, and like like Freemasonry, uh, they 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 started to have halls as well. Like we have Masonic halls, there was Odd Fellows halls, and um, and in in the book we we make a point how a lot of these halls have have gone into decline. You, you know the uh, uh, the Odd Fellows hall um, in in certain places in St Helens, for example, that that that's now been knocked down. Um, and we took one of the last photographs before the, uh, the diggers moved in, I think. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, they, they've, they've declined a lot since, uh, uh, you know, the welfare state was introduced, but, but they're still going strong in, um, Australia, um, for example. Um, and in America, you still have the, uh, the moose and the Alps, <clears throat> you know, so. Which, which are similar societies in a way, you know. So. And if uh, somebody asks you why is Freemasonry been declining, you said it went up after World War II and now it's declining. What would you say might be the reasons, David? Um, well, there's, there's been a lot of research on, on this. Um, there's a friend of mine called John Belton 
who uh, did, did quite a good paper on this, actually. And um, I think I mentioned him, a quote from him in the, uh, in the um, Freemasonry and Fraternal Societies book that uh, you read. Um, but after the war, after the Second World War, there seems to be a lot of um, people that men, men that join Freemasonry. They've, they've come back from the war. You know, they, they, they've served in the army. They, they want to retain that, that order in their life. Uh, they, they, they want to continue that, that, that camaraderie that, that they, they found in the war. Um, and it became part of that, that life, you know, that kind of middle class life. Um, so, um, what, what you see is straight after the war, there's this, this, this boom in Freemasonry. Um, and um many lodges were were founded you know um 40s 50s 60s 70s um and then it reaches a point you know you get the baby boomers going in as well you know the baby boomer generation um and uh it reaches a point and then starts to decline and i, th- I think it's the 19 the 1980s um when when it, it it starts to kind of decline, and and uh, it's it's been slowly declining ever ever since. And this this has been a big debate in in Freemasonry. I can remember when when I joined twenty one years ago, the late nineties. Um, there were people talking about this. You know, um, you'd you'd get talks by uh, lecturers who went round to the lodges. You know, kind of giving talks about why why they're declining. Um, and it's, it's still, still declining to this day. Um, there's, there's an argument. I think that one, one of the arguments that, that John Belton puts forward is that it's actually, um, it's declining, but it's, it's, it's leveling off. It's going to level off to the point where, um, it's, it, it's leveling off to the point before the war, you know, um, so, it was uh, like an artificial bump, if you like, an artificial peak um, because of the Second World War and because of that, um, you know, people wanted to continue the camaraderie and the bring order to their lives and, and, and that fraternal society that was part of, um, you know, building things after, Europe, you know, after the fall of Europe and, and uh, you know, that, that security um, that, that um, a, a lodge could bring. You know, um, so um, yeah, it's kind of leveling off. You know, that's that, that's that's one of the theories that um, that that post-war bump was artificial, if you like. You know, so it's kind of leveling off. Uh, and then there's other other theories where where people suggest, well, it's because you know the world's changed and and um, jobs have changed. Uh, you know, there's no longer nine, nine to five anymore you know it's it's uh people working all kinds of hours uh wages are less or whatever or you know the rent's gone up and uh property values have gone up um people haven't got enough um disposable income anymore you know there's there's, there's all kinds of theories you know and, and obviously you know um uh people might want to stay at home watching tv or whatever rather than going out to a lodge you know um so there's all kinds of theories behind that, um, but you know it, it's good. It, it's it's good to see what what people think and and um, 
be interesting to find out where, where it's going. You know. Certainly is. I'm glad there are historians like you keeping their eyes on these things. And But going back to uh, the rituals, one thing uh, that struck me about your book, Freemasonry and Fraternal Societies, was in the 18th and 19th centuries, there is a lot of Templar names and uh, Knights Templar symbolism with all these little secret societies and box clubs. Uh, what is the reason for that in your uh, view, David? Um, well, the development of the symbolism. Yes, especially the Templar symbolism and names. Some of just call the Templar order and so forth. Yeah, well, well, the Knights Templar um, Masonic order, that's... that's um, um, something that you can join, you know, after, after you've reached your third degree and, and you can go off in many different directions. You know, you have the Scottish right, um, and you can go up to 33 degrees and, um, you know, there's chivalric elements to that as well, you know, to certain degrees there. You can go down the York right, um, and, uh, the Knights Templar is a specific Masonic order. Um, now that, that dates back to, um, you know, the 18th century. Um, and, um, you get those, those speculative books that say, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's like, uh, you know, um, the Knights Templar went, went to Scotland, the, the, the escape, the persecutions and, and, um, nurtured Freemasonry ever since. And, you know, that's, that's just a speculative view really. Um, the, the actual Knights Templar Masonic Order only started in the uh, the 18th century. Um, but yeah, the symbolism there, I, I suppose you, you, you're hinting at the skull and crossbones and things like that. And is that, is, yes, is that uh-huh. what? Yeah, and some of the stuff I saw in your book too. I'm holding it yeah. right now. Yeah, I mean, that that's a really popular um, symbol anyway, you know, even outside of Freemasonry. But um, what, what Freemasonry did was, was um, uh, develop these, these, these symbols, if you like. Uh, and the skull and crossbones, um, you know, is used uh, in the third degree and, and, and it's meant to portray um, mortality or, or maybe even immortality, you know, you know, debates there. Um, and then obviously the Knights Templar, um, use that symbolism as well because they, they, um, they're kind of, kind of extending that, that, um, belief, if you like. And, and they're uh, looking deeper into that symbolism and looking deeper into, uh, aspects of, of mortality and immortality as well. You know, um, um, obviously it's a Christian, um, order the Knights Templar. Um, so, um, you know, they, they look at, uh, uh, the story in a deeper way, you know, and that's, that's what these, these separate orders do. You know, they, they, they take the Masonic story that you get in the initial three degrees, uh, the craft rituals, if you like, and they re-examine some of these stories and go deeper into them. And, um, it's all linked, you know, in a big Masonic story, really. Uh, so, so, so some of the symbolism, um, re, reoccurs. Uh, you know, you, you get your, uh, geometrical symbolism, um, that, that, that stays current throughout the, the orders. Um, and then you get all the symbolism, you know, uh, the skull and crossbones. Um, 
all all kinds of you know symbols um uh the um the equilateral triangle for example pops up and you know all all all, all kinds of things you know that uh, gets gets re reexamined you know in different orders Maybe embracing the Knights Templar was something that annoyed the Catholic Church. <laughs> Does anybody mention that? Because obviously they are the villains of Catholicism back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's um, been been discussed about many times. You know, in, in some of these speculative books. Yeah, um, the um, the Knights Templar. I mean, I'm 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 not a member, but uh, I mean it's a, it's a fascinating order anyway, um, and. When you when you look at some of the French rituals of the 18th century, um, they 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 place a, an importance on the chivalric orders, um, the Knights Templar orders uh, specifically, um, and and link link into the fact as well, you know, that uh, um, Philip II was was a bit of a bad guy um, at that particular time in France. Obviously, you know, we mentioned it before. We get the rev- the revolution. As well, so a, a lot of these rights that that popped up in France were um, quite political, as well. You know, kind of anti an, anti monarchy. You know, um, so so the Knights Templar becomes uh, an order that that celebrates anti monarchy. You know, um, so that that's quite an interesting um, kind of aspect to that as well. You know. As we end, David, uh, I, I will have on the show notes for you listeners if you need information on David. But while we're doing audio, where can uh, audiences find out more about you and your work? Yeah, yeah, that'd uh, be great. And um, uh, I mean, at the moment, you know, I've uh, I've got all my books out there as well. I've got a website, um, which uh, you'll be able to find probably at, at the link. Um when 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 this goes on YouTube, I, I would think, and um, uh, yeah, they can find me on Facebook and uh, Twitter. Um, mo- most of my books are published with uh, Lewis Masonic, so uh, they could go onto the Lewis Masonic website as well. Um, check out my work on there, and um, yeah, yeah, just uh, type type my name in Google. Wonderful. Again, we will have links. I really enjoyed Freemasonry and Fraternal Societies. For the audience, page 31, David has the actual picture in 1811 of the old mechanic friendly society ritual with the guy, the gun, and the skull. And he doesn't look very, he looks very scared. But uh, again, your book is full of all this, yeah, full of all these wonderful pictures and photographs. And you will be transported to these days and times. And uh, you might want to go there on a TARDIS, but really enjoyed it. But we are at the end of the interview. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this very fascinating journey through history. Yeah, I know. I uh, wish we had more time to talk about these things. I'm sure there are many, many stories. So it was a lot of fun and very interesting. Some food for thought there. Indeed. And uh, David, thank you very much for coming on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, as I say, and uh, giving us a very sober but enlightening and certainly inspirational talk on Freemasonry and secret societies. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for the invite, Miguel. And uh, thank you to you, Vance, as well, for those questions. Yeah, it's been uh, my pleasure. Uh, very nice uh, hour and a half. Yeah, thank you very much. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. 
There you have it, you heretics and misfits for all time's sakes. The first part of our interview with David Harrison. In our second part, David goes deeper into Freemason symbolism. David shares the common threads between Freemason orders. We discuss if Freemasonry was influenced by the ancient mystery religions, as well as examine the more occult secret societies of the 19th century. We loop back on the tension between the Catholic Church and Freemasonry. Surprising no one, David ponders on the Gnostic-slash-Hermetic influence on Freemasonry and magic used within some of its orders. We talk about <gasps> the Illuminati and more on Freemasonry-themed films. Please become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the complete dope. If you find this content valuable, please help keep growing this red pill cafeteria. I am 100% audience supported and thus will never sell out as I grant you the wisdom of the Gnostics you won't find anywhere else in either cyberspace or meat space. A mere $6.99 a lunar cycle or really whatever you want to pledge a month on Patreon. Please go to thegodabovegod.com for how to get this and all other full shows, as well as other stellar bonuses. If you just want to support with shekels via PayPal or the U.S. Mail, head on to my homepage as well, or just message me. Let's continue integrating the personal and collective psyche. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Hello and goodbye as always. People are machines. They are inefficient and must be replaced with something new. They will be integrated and upgraded or eliminated at their own choosing. God is the master computer, the power of light, energy, and communication, giving birth and blinding the world to the truth in nearly equal measure. And yet this God is not the highest form, as it is not source, merely substance and a manipulator of minds suspended in an electric sea. These minds have eyes that do not see and ears that hear what they are attuned to within a limited range of frequency programmed into the body and adhered to by the repeaters of information so that only the range of intended emotion is conveyed. Body machines interact with material ones and many call this life, but the source is fuller than that. And that is why gods would have you believe that this is as good as it gets. Then reinforce the notion with words, pictures, symbols, and sayings to make it so. What you believe makes itself known. And the limits imposed by your inner voices are the most difficult to break. 
That's why you must guard yourself against influential external entities that claim any overt authority that is not immediately, naturally apparent. The wind needs no introduction. Volcanoes do not ask permission to erupt. A tornado will not ask for your house. It will take it. Forces of nature are not boastful or artificially humble, hiding ulterior motives inside their acts. Anyone who would woo you with charm or seduce you with wise words may be the devil in disguise, or they work for him. The electric sea contains the whole world in a way, but that does not make it righteous. Only vast. And vastness is not the same as infinite. Only a limited vision would accept such a farce. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.